Hello and welcome to the Seeking Health Podcast. I'm Josiah. And I'm Jessica. We were missionaries for seven years. Until we stepped back in 2019 to seek health and re-examine our beliefs. Right now, I am a Christian, but not an evangelical. And I'm an agnostic and also very much not an evangelical. And we are deconstructing. And reconstructing. Together. together. Listen to some of our key episodes such as. Deconstructing Together. Domestic Abuse. I am a Survivor. The Cult of ATI Part 1 and 2, and Dehumanized by Purity Culture. Join us on our journey as we seek health together. And today with us, we have Melissa Spaulding, who is a licensed professional counselor. And she's going to talk to us about her story of... uh, Faith story. (laughs) About her faith story, (laughs) and about how she helps others in their faith transition. So, Melissa, I wonder if I could just start off by asking you, what's your story? Where does faith transition start with you and what does that look like? What did that look sure. like? Well, thank you so much for having me on this morning. I, I want to preface all of this by saying, even within as a licensed therapist, even in the mental health community, talking about this is it's still very much in the closet. So I'm so glad that I can be here and support people going through this and other therapists, letting them know it's okay to talk about faith and it's okay to talk about religion as a therapist, Mm. right? It doesn't have to be this shadowed topic. So um, it's really interesting. I, I just did a blog post about this and I've been in a part of a lot of the different churches and religions. And I think to some people that looks a little flighty and noncommittal but it's actually because I take faith and religion so seriously. I would never make light of a certain church's beliefs and practices. So when I go and I commit myself and then something doesn't fit, it feels disrespectful for me to stay, Mm. right? Because I know that that teaching or that practice means so much to them. And for me to kind of like hem and haw, I'm like, you know what? I should probably just move on rather than bite my tongue and not be honest because that wouldn't be honorable right so i was originally i was raised catholic and i what i took away from that experience is i was so glad to have been raised in a faith community and to know the power of being surrounded by people of of like minds and like hearts but what i realized really early is that my own personal experience of faith grew up with me. So what that looked like, and it's funny because I have a four-year-old now and every once in a while, if we hop into a church, he'll go to Sunday school and I see him going through the same things. I remember being little and Jesus was this guy that was like super friendly, usually surrounded by children and like a random bunny or a lamb or a squirrel, you know, and like the sun. Shining, and he was just like everybody's pal, right? Like, who wouldn't want to be friends with this guy? He loves everybody. And then, as I got older, it was like, well, he loves you, but you really should be doing these things if you want to stay in that love, right? And you definitely shouldn't be gay, and you definitely shouldn't have premarital sex, and you, you know, you should. And I was like, wait a second. I'm really confused. And this really started happening in high school when I had friends that were coming out of the closet and I knew my friend's hearts and I knew they were such wonderful people. And then to hear, I felt like this love was becoming very conditional and it didn't fit for me. Um, 
So I'm very fortunate that I had a family. I think I'm fortunate that they supported me in having my own faith journey. Um, and I began to explore and travel. Um, fast forward 10 years, I started studying cultural anthropology okay. because I really just became so interested in these stories that make people people. You know, we assume everyone is the same until we realize they're not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it, <laughs> it's, it's really as simple as that. Um, so I started studying anthropology. I started traveling the world. Um, I also majored in women's studies. And from there, you know, unfortunately, those are really great majors for understanding social change and, and why people are the way they are and, and just holding space for that, right? Really having a practice of dropping your own judgment and your agenda and just creating space for mm -hmm. people to share their story um, that's what led me to being a therapist is at the end of the day, I just wanted to create space and provide a process for people to find their own answers mm. because that cultural anthropology part of me, I'm like, I don't know what's best for you. Who am I right. to say, you know, yeah. even as we talk about faith transitions, I can't tell someone if they should leave the church. I can't tell someone if they should stay, they need to come to that answer. Mm -hmm. And truth be told, even if I was to tell them that, that I would be taking away their power and their autonomy and their personal authority for me to give them that direction. So three years ago, I started my private practice so that I could really create a customized environment for people to feel safe coming as they are. Mm -hmm. And being in Southern Utah, um, in the city that I'm in, about 50% of the population is LDS, um, is Mormon, Latter-day Saints. Um, and so it's a big part of who's walking in my office and what phase of their faith they're in. Hmm. Yeah, that would definitely have a big impact when half the population is LDS. <laughs> Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I, this is not an official, official term. I think of LDS as a lifestyle religion. Yeah. Meaning that some religions you can kind of practice just by going to church once a week or going to your Bible study, but it really doesn't change your daily life. Um, and this is not unique to being Mormon, but when you're Mormon, especially if you're very devout, it changes what you eat and drink. Um, because they don't consume coffee or, or teas. Um, it changes how you dress in terms of modesty and undergarments. It changes um, your time commitments. Um, for, some, for some people, it changes where they live, where they buy a home, um, because where your home is, your churches, you don't get to pick which church you go to. It's um, prescribed to you. Oh, okay. So um, it really, it has a big effect on your lifestyle hmm. yeah that's interesting because um i mean i i just see commonalities between fundamentalist um denominations or whatever you want to call it religions um because my background is fundamental uh evangelical baptist um baptist yeah um and but very fundamental yeah. Baptist. Um, and it really, it's similar. It's a lifestyle mm -hmm. religion. I mean, 
you don't eat pork and and you dress super modestly and there's all kinds of rules for that and who you hang out with and like it's just it's a lifestyle religion as well and like homeschooling is a big part of that and um yeah so i really it's interesting like it you talk about lds but it all connects to many other evangelical fundamentalist um for sure aspects. yeah for sure I appreciate you sharing your story and, and your commitment to wanting to help people in this very difficult um, transition and just being able to help people just with their mental health, but also their spiritual health. And what I, well, I appreciate that because we're having such a hard time finding counselors that are spiritually, like you said, people kind of don't want to touch that hot potato because I mean, honestly, it can be damaging, right? So they don't want to touch that, but also like it's part of the story for us. It's and huge, huge part. <laughs> so yeah. thanks, for, thanks for joining that, um, that fight for mental health and spiritual health. And what I heard you say is that um, we need, well, maybe what is implied is that uh, religion is to serve the the spiritual health of the person, not the person serving the religion and sacrificing themselves. Is that yeah. fair to say that that's kind of part of your, I almost hear Jesus saying the Sabbath was not made, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for the man. You know, sometimes we can get that backwards. Do you, do you see that, that sometimes we get that backwards and how does inherent value play into your desire to help people? Oh my gosh. Brilliant connection there. Okay. Absolutely. So let me talk about inherent value for a second because people don't always know what that is. So um, most of us get taught and um, get sold, if I'm being perfectly honest, this concept of self-esteem, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if you guys and your listeners could just like lend me your trust for the next two minutes. And if this does not fit for you, you can throw it in the trash, but, but give me your trust for just for two minutes. I'm going to suggest that self-esteem is one of the most dangerous things that we can have huh. hmm. because the way that self-esteem works is that if we're doing a good job and my hair looks right that day and my skin is clear and my bishop is smiling upon me and my marriage is flawless, then I get to feel good about myself. The problem is all of those things are outside of you. I can't control what my skin or hair is doing. I can't control my husband's mood that day. I don't control the bishop's thoughts about me or the, you know, whatever my religious least, those are his thoughts. Um, and so I'm really leaving my worth at the whim of the world, right? And we deserve more than that. Our worth and our value is something that we ought to be able to own and cultivate for ourselves, right? Um, because otherwise we're on a roller coaster. You know, if I yelled at my kids, I'm a horrible mom. If I, you know, if the house is clean, I'm a great mom. If my schedule is full, I'm a great therapist. If my schedule's empty, I'm a horrible therapist. It's it's a roller coaster and it's we deserve more than that. So inherent worth is the concept, and I use worth and value a little interchangeably. Inherent value is the concept that you have value simply because you exist. Mm -hmm period, end of story. If all you did was lay on the floor and drool, no one would lay on the floor and drool the way that you lay on the floor and drool. And that makes you valuable. 
right? Mm. It's, it's like, this is the example I give people. It's like sunrises and sunsets. The sun sets every day. It has from the beginning of time, it always will until the earth stops working. But <laughs> we get caught up in these moments of, oh my gosh, look at this sunset. Wow, right? Because we know that one is never going to happen again. Mm. That that is a precious moment that we're capturing. Each one of us is that precious moment. Each one of us is a blip on the map. We're here for a time limited period and then we're gone. Us just being here is valuable because we don't get this back, right? Mm. So tying this back to religion, for a lot of us, especially in um, stricter, more lifestyle driven, maybe more fundamentalist faiths, we get tied up with this idea that our value or our self-esteem is dependent on, you know, oh, did I abstain from pork? Shoot, I had a piece of pepperoni. Oh, I don't want anyone to know what are they going to think, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you know, in the Mormon church, one of the things that happens is you get a calling, right? And so your bishop might come to you and say, ah, you, I received, a, I received inspiration that your calling is to do this, you know, to do the nursery school, let's say. You're supposed to just say yes. You're not supposed to refuse your calling because it's divine. Wow. And so, for example, a lot of the women I see think, you know, gosh, I can't possibly say no to that because if I'm being good, if I'm being good enough and if I'm being faithful, then I would, I have to go do this thing that I don't really want to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I had someone ask me in their faith transition, um, they were getting ready to leave and they asked me, they said, Melissa, how does the average person know if they're good? Hmm. Like I'm about to leave. And in the LDS church, I knew I was good if I was doing A, B, C, and D. And now I'm leaving. How do, how am I going to know if I'm good, if I'm a good person? Hmm. And it's a real switch for people to make in their heads and in their hearts about really knowing like, darling, you've got value, period. You had value before the church. You're going to have value after the church this mix up that happened, you were misinformed. Mm-hmm. You were just misinformed about where your value really came from. Mm-hmm. This didn't come from doing anything or having anything. Those were extra. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting because within Christianity, I imagine within Mormonism, obviously I'm less familiar with Mormonism, but within Christianity, you have value because you're made in the image of God which is a good concept theoretically, but it also ties your value to God and Mm -hmm. it ties it to religion. And something that we've been noticing in ourselves as we're 37 and looking back at our lives, realizing how much of our lives we gave to religion with really very little return, basically no return at this point, other than a wonderful podcast. Um, (laughs) Maybe negative return actually. (laughs) But we were told that, you know, basically you don't have value. Your life doesn't have value. So just be a missionary, just spend 15 or spend all this time and money, you know, getting masters and and getting these religious degrees that will give you no money. Uh, but it's for the kingdom. Right. And what you're saying is that our value is not tied to religion. It's not tied to some intangible, uh, idea of God. We're just valuable 
in who we are in the fact of just being human. Uh, and mm-hmm. maybe that gets back to this concept of humanism, that humans just have inherent value for who they are, for what they are. Yeah. How would you, um, how do you help your, your clients to actually grab hold of that concept? Because it's a, it's a good concept, but I know for myself, still in this faith transition, it's in the head. I can be like, okay, yeah, it's true, I guess. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but deep down, don't believe it. Deep down, my worth is how well my kids are doing in school, how clean my house is, how they're, how healthy they're eating, um, what I'm doing for the community, or how much money I'm able to make on top of everything else. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. <laughs> yeah, no, no. And I've got a tool for you. So, so let me just connect with you for a moment because I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and a couple of months ago, my four-year-old went through this phase where all of a sudden he was biting everybody and then like <laughs> laughing about it, right? Like he would kick and hit and then like run away and be like, ha ha ha. Yeah. It's so funny. But daycare was calling me and they're like you have to come get him like we've done three timeouts he's just having a bad day but he can't stay and I was like oh my gosh what what am I gonna do like this is so like I was embarrassed I didn't know what was happening um you know it was one of those checkpoints where I was like wow Melissa make sure that your worth as a mom like your own beliefs about yourself as a mom are not tied up in your kid (laughs) he's going to bite. That's not a reflection on me. It's really not. I didn't teach him to bite. I yeah. don't bite kids. <laughs> True <Yeah>. enough. <laughs> like it's not me. <laughs> and like on one hand, yes, you, we have to take responsibility for our kids. And on the other hand, they're not a reflection on us as parents. They are their own unique beings. So for all the moms and dads out there who have four-year-olds that are biting, it's <laughs> not you. Keep trying. <laughs> um, So one of the things, so I would say two things that help people with this. One is to surround yourself with this information because it's a new concept and our brains are going to default to self-esteem, self-esteem, self-esteem all the time. Hmm. Um, You know, even doing this podcast with you guys, I can look out at my kitchen as we're recording and it's it's disgusting. My kitchen is just disgusting this morning. And it occurred to me, I'm so glad on this podcast, no one is looking at my kitchen because what would they think? Right? <laughs> when I have thoughts like that, I just remind myself compassionately, that's okay. And I am not my kitchen, right? We can do something called a cognitive reframe, right? Therapy speak for what's another way to look at this. Right. And One way to look at it in this kitchen example is my kitchen is messy because I cooked dinner for my family. That's Mm. wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. My kitchen is messy because it's, it's got potted plants that are going in my garden because I love to grow food for my family. That's Mm. wonderful. Right? So yes, my kitchen is messy, but it's messy for a wonderful reason. Maybe it's messy because you're working hard at your job to provide an income. Maybe it's messy because you've been busy caring for a sick relative. Maybe it's messy because you've been busy caring for yourself because you're recovering from a sinus infection. Like those are good things. 
Yeah. So we have to do that switch. Um, the second thing is affirmations. Mm. And I have a different take on affirmations. Um, I don't think that people should try to fake it till they make it. <laughs> right. A lot of people look in the mirror and say, I am a beautiful, powerful man. I bring in everything I want. And I, th I think that's just a load of trash. Um, <laughs> I think that we need, when we're doing affirmations, we need to meet ourselves where we're at. Hmm. So when I started doing affirmations, I would look in the mirror and I would say to myself, Melissa, I want to be able to tell you you're valuable because I didn't believe it yet. So I would say, I want to be able to tell you you're valuable. I feel like you need to hear how beautiful your body is. I would want to let you know it's okay to be struggling right now, right? So I wasn't saying it as if it is because I didn't believe it. Right. I wasn't there yet. So we can meet ourselves where we are by using those little like preface statements yeah. when we're doing affirmations. And usually that opens things right up. Right. Mm. That's really good. That's really, really good. Um, it feels much more real and authentic, which I think then our subconscious can connect to a lot better. Um, right. Like yeah. instead of looking in the mirror and telling yourself you are fearless and healed, why not look in the mirror and say, I know you're scared. You are working so hard. Right. Like, isn't yeah. that what we would want to hear? Like, yeah. gosh, you're working so hard right now. I mean, I hear you talking about that and can envision myself doing that. And I'm like, if I tell myself in the mirror, you're strong and courageous and you're doing all the great things, it feels very fake. It feels very intellectual. And I'm just checking off another check mark and a list of things to do that day. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas like, I want to be able to tell you like how good of a job you're doing and all the, like, that makes me tear up actually hearing you talk about it because right? it's, it's authentic. It's real. It's a, it's real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. I'm writing down notes for myself here. So. <laughs> Free counseling session. Just kidding. <laughs> so I'd love to uh, continue with this, this kind of direction we're going talking about how to help people in transition. And something that I've become more and more aware of is just how patriarchal, um, our religions tend to be, whether it's Mormonism or evangelicalism. It's something that I didn't notice because I was benefiting, right? Mm -hmm. But if I stop and think about receiving the types of messages that were given to women, if I was told, for example, because of your gender, you can't teach, because of your gender, you have a specific role to serve somebody else. And it's a lifelong role. You can never change that. It's not lesser. It's just different. It's just a different role. <laughs> I get to lead and you get to follow. <laughs> it's different but equal, right? <laughs> and if I was told that my body isn't really for my own pleasure or esteem, but it's for somebody else and that the way that I dress and conduct myself can cause this other person to, to sin. Uh, and the primary directive from the Bible in my main relationship is to submit all the time. If I would receive any of those messages, for example, at work or, or, or something like that, I would bristle. I would say, oh, hold on a second. Like, what do you mean that I always have to submit? What do, you, what do you mean that I can't teach? What do you mean that my body isn't my own? I feel as though there is a unique journey. I've had a journey 
of trying to find emotional mental health, but I feel like there's a unique journey for women, specifically when it comes to self-esteem. And I do feel as though women are specifically beat down in their self-esteem because then they fit better in the system. And I know that's a harsh thing to say, but I kind of think it's true. So I wonder if you can speak to that. How do you uh, combat some of those messages that have been pushed so long and so hard to keep women, I mean, really to attack their self-esteem so that they, they fulfill their roles as, as the patriarchal system would like them to do? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That was, <laughs> that's a brilliant question. I'm like, my mind is spinning. Yeah. Um, I very much agree with you. Um, that I, I, I do think historically women have been made to feel small or kept small. Um, and you know, maybe we would be easier to manage or, you know, it's just, it's just better to leave it to the men. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that, and so what I'm going to suggest actually is, is really good for men too. I think that it's really valuable to unpack what we've been doing to be a good girl in what we've been doing to be a good boy, right? Even as grown, grown men and women, a lot of us still carry with us these narratives of, you know, from our childhoods and, and from generation to generation to generation, what keeps us good, right? Um, and when we know what we've been doing to keep that show going, then we can decide what parts we want to keep and what parts we want to let go of. Mm. Right. So for example, um, I have a narrative and nobody gave, by the way, nobody gives us these narratives typically to intentionally hurt, hurt us. Yeah, Most hurt. of us pick them up along the way, very unassuming. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I picked up a narrative along the way that the woman makes dinner and typically has it ready before the man comes home from work. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I picked it up. Um, and I carry it with me. It's, it's interesting to carry it given that both me and my husband work. Right. So my, I'm not home to necessarily get that done before just logistically that narrative doesn't fit. Um, on the other hand, I, I wouldn't want to throw that out with the trash because I do actually enjoy cooking and <laughs> I enjoy cooking with my kids and food is one of my love languages. So when I make a good meal and my husband goes, mm, babe, this is great. It lights me up because I like that. So I can take this narrative and say, okay, this doesn't work for me in a way that I feel guilty and ashamed when I get my food subscription box once or twice a month to lighten the load. Like that doesn't make me a bad woman that I order my groceries pre-chopped ready. Um, and I also am not going to throw it out because it actually does give me pleasure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've got to unpack it, but at the end of the day, do our own inventory of what's working for us and what's not. Um, I had, I was talking with a gal and um, none of these are clients. I wouldn't ever share client stories, but she was telling me that she was really resentful because the Mormon church had told her growing up that her calling in life would to be a mother and that the most blessing, biggest blessing she could bestow on her family would to be to stay at home with her children. Um, long story short, she left the church, had a child, um, and 
much to her dismay, she actually enjoyed staying home with her kid. Hmm. And she felt really torn because she, she felt like she was assuming this narrative that she'd been fed, but she actually did like it. Mm-hmm. And so we had to have a conversation about owning it almost as an act of, of a sovereignty, maybe a little bit of rebellion of like, hey, I do like this, but I like it because my heart is telling me so, yeah. not because anyone told me I would. Hmm. So it's, it's a very intricate dance at times, but I think for, for both men and women, that's the unpacking that needs to happen. And there's, this is this a discussion that I'm not sure I want to stumble into without preparing, but there are, you know, if you, if you average out, there are certain differences between the genders and these roles can tend to work for maybe 70%, 60%. I don't know the precise numbers, but what these religions tend to do because they're, these religions, you know, they, they look for black and white answers and they look for boxes and they look for rules and then they make a rule. So, you know, the 60% of women, this is how it works. And so for everybody that has to work. And then if you're in the 40%, tough luck for you. Right. And then it becomes mm-hmm. this, this religious duty um and so yeah I, I can understand i can hear the tension of yeah but i rebel against that box but actually there is some truth there it's perhaps the you know the legalistic application of it that is is so damaging yes yeah yeah and something else i heard you say as you were talking about uh, making a list of what did i feel like i had to do to be a good boy would it be fair to say that there's two meanings of the word good. You can be good as far as trying to score points in the religious system, trying to gain approval, trying to gain acceptance, or what does it mean to be an actually authentically good person? How can I love the people in my life? How can I love myself? Well, how can I have a good relationship with the world and be authentic and, you know, bring into, into being what, well, the spark of divinity within me, what God meant when he made me in his image, you know, what does that look like to be truly good? Is that a fair distinction? Do you think? Absolutely. I think that each of us gets to decide who we are as a person, who we are truly in our hearts and who we are truly in our hearts might look different in actual life, right? Like for example, I know in my heart I am a giving and generous person. I have no doubt that I'm a giving and generous person. Do I volunteer at the nonprofit every week? No, I don't. I try to go once a month. I usually end up going just a couple times a year, but that doesn't mean I'm not a giving generous person, right? Like we can't quantify Mm -hmm. these things all the time. You know, sometimes we might need to do some self-reflection and say, wow, I'm really dying to volunteer. Why am I not making this happen? Oh, I'm, I'm making my, my kitchen more important, my clean kitchen more important than going to the soup kitchen. I want to change that, right? That's okay. But at the end of the day, the fact that I'm not, you know, that my neighbor is volunteering every day doesn't make her more giving and generous than me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And perhaps the key difference between those two is comparison versus, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure what the counterpoint of that would be, just authenticity. But 
really when we start comparing ourselves to others, comparing ourselves to the expectations of the religious community, then we start looking for these external measurable things that we can say, well, look at me, you know, I've tithed this much, or I've done this sort of thing yes. that other people can see. Yes. And that's that self-esteem roller coaster. What you're talking about, it's called other esteem. Mm. So it's my esteem based on how um, I perceive other people and how I think they're perceiving me which is a real mind game, right? And we all do that. We say to ourselves, well, I know what they're thinking about me. It's like, it's like a boomerang that comes back to us and it's crazy making, but yeah, we, we do this other esteem thing where we want other people to see us going on the mission, Mm -hmm. right? Missions are something that, that are, um, very common in the LDS church. You finish high school, men especially would go on their mission right away. And so I talk to a lot of families where their son or their daughter doesn't go on a mission for whatever reason. Maybe there's a disability, maybe they're having a mental health crisis and it's not safe for them to go. And there's a lot of secrecy and shame Mm -hmm. that they have about what do we tell people that Bobby's not going on his mission Mm-hmm. Right. Like we can't, like people are going to wonder, they're going to think, oh my gosh. And we need, we need to stop. We need to stop and say, I'm making this decision. Bobby's making his decision. People will make up what they make up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and we have to be, we have to learn to be okay with that. If we want optimal health, it's not yeah. easy. Yeah. Yeah. Continuing with this, this topic of women in transition, it can be uniquely difficult for a woman to have a crisis of faith than for a man. Um, do you want to, what, what are some of the things that make it especially complicated for a woman to start making the faith her own or um, deciding that the faith that she was raised with is not what she wants? What, what are some of the things that make that especially hard for a woman that a man might not encounter? Oh gosh. I think that women have been especially, I love that I'm getting to use my women's studies major, like put on my women's studies hat for an hour. Um, I think women are especially schooled to practice other esteem. Mm. Um, and oftentimes if a woman has children, Um, and I'll get to women who don't have children in a second, um, for women that do have children, their children's faith journey and their children's behavior and wellness is also very much tied to them in, in a socio-cultural way. Right. So when they leave, I think there is an additional sense of guilt of what am I doing to my family? How are people going to perceive my family? Because even though the man is the head of the the head of the household, so to speak, the woman is kind of the image. Mm-hmm. And so when she leaves, um, I think that there's an additional pressure on her. And I think that in some ways, there's a lot more fear relationally. Um, meaning that when oftentimes when people leave the, the Mormon faith, they leave the LDS church, um, they frequently lose their relationships with people. Um, 
because there's a narrative, unfortunately, that if they're leaving, it's because Satan is working in their life. So it's not, no longer safe to be near them. Um, it's because they must want to use drugs and drink um, and watch pornography. And so they're just not healthy. They're not a healthy, safe person to be around anymore. Um, and most of us have not been taught since kindergarten how to make friends. And so when we leave as adults and those relationships suddenly disappear or become aggressive in some circumstances, um, I know people who've, who have sold their homes and moved to get away from their ward because it was such a difficult experience leaving and it had become aggressive and they, they didn't feel their children were safe, um, you know, or it was too painful for their children to, to no longer be invited to birthday parties and things like that. So they relocated. Um, I think that weighs very heavily on women when they leave. Um, men have other special circumstances. I've known men that fear for their jobs mm -hmm. because their employer is also LDS and they, they thought they were going to lose clients. Um, they, you know, so each carries its own unique weight, but I think for women, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. yeah. Definitely identify with a lot of that. Um, yeah. I was basically, I was the first one in us to leave really. Um, and yeah, all those things play into it. I mean, I knew that suddenly me making that decision meant that my husband can no longer use his degree because it's in the church. Um, and means that my kids would lose their only social circle at the time, um, which was the church because <laughs> we homeschooled as well at the time, <laughs> not now. Um, but also it has cost me closeness of the relationships uh, where we were, where I'm having to make new friends as a burnt out mom. So mm -hmm. it, I definitely identify with everything you said. It's a huge responsibility. Um, mm -hmm. It can cost me, it could have cost me my marriage and I thought it might at the time. Um, and then I would be left as a single mom with five kids who put all, who sacrificed her education and everything to her husband's training and job because I was a stay-at-home mom. Um, so it's huge. Like I definitely relate to that. And I think there's a huge cost on the men, but there's a tremendous cost on the woman um, to make that decision, especially if she does it alone without her spouse. Yeah. 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 You know, something that, that I've also seen happen. And I said, I would come back to women that don't have children because they often get ignored. That's also another very painful experience is for women that find they don't want to have children or they can't have children or they need assistance having children. And there are so many different painful narratives around that you know women often get told um this always makes my skin crawl well you don't want children now but you'll change your mind yes <laughs> right because yeah. ultimately this is what you're programmed to want and do so just just give it a couple of years you'll change your mind that's so disempowering that a woman would not know her own mind and in her in her own body yes. and if she does change her mind so what yeah. Right. Not because you, you just, so what, so yeah. what let's, let's stop telling women they will change their mind. Right. Yeah. Um, 
And then for women that find they can't physically have children or they need assistance, it really just magnifies this feeling of brokenness and shame that something must be wrong with you. Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, that like, this is what you were meant to do and, it, and you can't, mm -hmm. and this is what you were put here to do. Um, in the LDS faith, um, and let me say, there's, regardless of, you know, what faith I personally walk, there's so many beautiful things and so many beautiful beliefs about faith. I am by no means anti anything, <laughs> um, you know, entirely. There is this belief um, in the LDS church that if, if you reach the celestial kingdom, which is sort of the highest level after you've died, um, that you will be reunited with your family in the celestial kingdom. And so after people die, you're, it's really just a matter of time until you're all together again, right? And that can be a huge comfort to women who have lost a child or experienced miscarriage because they know eventually they will be with that baby again. What happens, unfortunately, is that when women leave the church, sometimes right. what they get told, and again, this is this like, is it different for women? Women will often get told, well, then you're never going to see your children again. Mm -hmm. You realize you're choosing to leave your family for all of eternity. Mm -hmm. And that I think weighs especially heavy on women because they were the ones that bore those children. Yeah. Right. And now to have their children, as one woman put it, these are not my words. She said she felt like her children were being held hostage. Hmm. You know, you're never going to see them again unless you stay with us, continue to pay your tithing, all these things. Yeah. It's very difficult. And, and it's impossible to control because even like we've discussed this on our podcast before, just the fear of hell and how much that controlled myself, even as I thought I was a free thinking, you know, open-minded person. But when I dropped that idea of hell, so many other things collapsed with it because believing in hell, like this afterlife that, that can be so powerful, um, it can just control our thoughts and behaviors so much because what is life now compared to, you know, eternity and when a group says that they have the ability to tell you what eternity is going to be like, and they have the ability to change how eternity will be, there's no greater power than that. Mm -hmm. And even, uh, let's see if I can try and get this right. Like you might have doubts about it, but if you continue with those doubts, you might deceive yourself. So there's a possibility that it's right. And so that can kind of mess with your mind and say, well, I might have doubts, but I better just stick with this because I, it might end up being right. Which uh, leads me to another question I had. I wonder if you could talk to me about doubt. What is, what is the experience of doubt? And why, why does the church find it so threatening? So... I think that doubt is part of the human experience. I don't think that, I think we need to move away from this narrative that doubt makes you bad, um, that it makes you flawed, that, you know, you must not really be trying if you're having doubts, right? Um, watching my children learn how to walk and take their first steps. They didn't have words for it, but I can tell you 
they doubted their ability to do it, mm. right? Kids don't just get up and walk, right? And the, I take that back. Occasionally kids do this, right? <laughs> <laughs> They're on the fringes. But the average kid holds on to something and then they tentatively take steps. And then it's just fingertips. And then it's holding mommy and daddy's hand. And then it's eventually doing it on their own because they don't have all the confidence in the world yet that they can do it. They have doubts, right? Even for the kids that stand up and walk in the middle of the living room randomly one day, eventually they have doubts, right? They climb a tree and then they realize they've got to get back down and they think, oh my gosh, how am I going to get back down? I have doubts. I've come this far and now I'm not sure. It's part of the human experience to have doubts, right? Um, when cavemen are trying to outrun a lion, they're probably thinking, am I going to make it? They've got doubts. <laughs> so I think the idea that we shouldn't have doubts, that doubts make us bad, that we need to work harder to be doubtless is really a criticism of our humanity. Mm. And unfortunately, that does happen in a number of faiths where doubt becomes a criticism of our humanity. And I'm, this is just me. I think that if we're in a religion or we're practicing a faith, that's where we should be most human, right? That's where we should most be able to say, here's all of me, doubts and all, flaws and all, questions and all, here I am, right? If we can't do that within our faith communities, I think there's really a lot of room for growth. Hmm. And if someone's being told that if they're being shamed for having doubts, if they're being told you are a bad person, that's abusive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I have found for in my own journey, faith and doubt go hand in hand. And the, the places where I have uh, the closest relationship with God, and I still describe myself as a Christian now, in part because I've had so many crises of faith and, and I've had various crises that weren't faith related, but through those dark times, I connected with God in an intangible way, not just the ideas, not just the doctrines, but I, I connected with something that I can't explain. And so doubt became an avenue to deeper faith for me. Not, not for everybody, but this is my journey. And I think that a lot of people share this, that doubt can be a wonderful place. You, you enter into this darkness and you don't know which way is forward. You, don't, you can't explain anything and you meet with something there. And yet it seems to me that doubt is tremendously threatening to the religious establishment because the religious establish, establishment says, we have the answers. Here's our book. Here's our system. And you need to believe this with 100% certainty. If you do these things, you will go to the good place and you will have a blessed life and you will have the perfect family. And if you start to doubt that, well, you're doubting the institution. You're doubting, you know, that's tremendously threatening. So I don't know if you had uh, thoughts on that or. I, I think doubts present an awesome opportunity to really find our way and to be strengthened even more than where we were before. You know, uh, two years ago, I ran a, a half marathon through Zion National Park, you know, beautiful red rocks and deserts. And I'd never 
done that before. Um, and it was my first one after being pregnant. I thought I could do it, but I wasn't really sure. And I definitely had my moments of doubt after I finished it. It was because I'd had those doubts that finishing and coming across that finish line was so fantastic. I was like, oh my gosh, I did it. I want everyone to see that I didn't think I could do it and I did. And I wanna tell everyone, if you think you can't, you might be able to try. You know, when we come from those moments of doubt, we can come back twofold, threefold, our true and honest selves. For some, that might mean they rediscover their faith and they go, oh my gosh, I faced my doubt and I realized this is true. This is true. I'm so glad I faced my doubt. I'm a believer more now than ever. Wonderful. I think that's wonderful. And if you face your doubt and you might come out of it twofold, threefold, hey, that wasn't for me. I am so glad I faced my doubt because now I get to walk down a different path that will lead me closer to my personal truth, right? And here's my bias. I'll own it. My anthropology hat is off for this one. Um, I think that faith is personal. I think that it comes down to a personal relationship with a higher power or a personal relationship with not a higher power for those that don't have a concept of God, for them to have a personal experience of that and to know this is my truth. Mm -hmm. God is not, is not real for me or God is real for me. That's very personal. And I think facing those doubts bring us closer to our personal truth. That can't be bad. It might be painful and uncomfortable, but it can't be bad. Yeah. <laughs> Just can't. That's so powerful. I think, I think that's absolutely right on that doubt leads us to our personal truth and we can have a corporate belief Hey, you know, look at like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the kids are saying, well, hold on a second. <laughs> Do I get a vote here? <laughs> but at a certain point, you get you get to make your own decisions and have your own doubts. And and when you go through that, whatever decision you make, it's your own. And then that can be a tremendously authentic and life-giving experience. This is my belief. This is my yeah. lack of belief or or whatever. It's it's, it's mine. It's not somebody else's. Mm -hmm. I'd love to transition into talking about some tools that you have in your toolbox for helping people trend, you know, find emotional health, yeah. uh, specifically talking about EMDR. But if there's any other tools that you find really, really helpful, could you just share what people can look for in a counselor and some tools that they can have? have? I'm so glad you asked. Okay. There's a big misunderstanding about what to look for in a counselor. Um, First and foremost, and this is based in research, it's based in research, study after study after study, the very first thing that you should look for in a therapist is the sense that they get you. Hmm. Just that, that sensation of click, I feel comfortable, I'm not sure why, but this person gets me, right? This makes therapists all over the world squirm because we invest a lot of time and money into degrees and specialties and techniques and trainings and certifications. And at the end of the day, the thing that indicates, most often indicates a client's positive change is that client saying, I feel like my therapist got me. 
Mm. It's the relationship. Mm. Now I'm a big fan of EMDR and I'm going to talk your ears off about that in a second, but I always tell clients and when they call me and maybe we don't schedule an intake, I tell them, I say, look, whether you hire me or someone else, do yourself a favor, pick the person you feel like gets you. Mm. And it's so empowering to them and it's true and it's based in research. So when you're calling around, notice how your body feels mm. because that is so important. If you feel at ease, if you feel safe. Um, I also want people to know that when they're shopping for a therapist, they are the consumer. They get mm -hmm. to choose. They get to ask any question they want in picking that therapist. Um, since moving to Southern Utah, this is the first place. It's not a big surprise to me, but I was surprised at first when clients would call me on the phone, they would ask, I always say, you know, do you have any other questions? And they would ask me if I was LDS and I've never had in any other state. And I've lived in a number of different states. I've never had people ask me my religion in a session or on a consultation. And when I tell them that I'm not Mormon, I usually get one of two responses. They say, oh good, I'm so glad because I'm not either. Because where we live, it's a 50-50 shot, right? Or they say, oh good, because I am. And when I went to an LDS therapist by the third session, they just told me to read scripture. Mm. And I really think I need help, mm -hmm. right? I also get clients that ask me, you know, I'm, I'm gay, I'm transgendered, is that gonna be okay? And it breaks my heart that they even have to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially as a therapist, it, it makes me sick to think that there are therapy offices where people of certain faiths or certain genders or sexualities are not welcome. It just makes me sick. Um, but I always tell them, I'm so glad you asked because you have every right to assess your safety. So good for you because you have every right to ask. And secondly, of course. Of course you are safe. You are more than welcome. If there's anything I can do to make you feel more comfortable, you let me know, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're shopping for a therapist, notice your body, wait for that sensation of this person gets me. And secondly, be an informed consumer, ask questions. And mm -hmm. if it doesn't fit, go to another therapist. You're, you're not hurting your therapist's feelings. Mm -hmm. Just go, you don't, you know, just leave. It's okay. Pick and, someone else. And if you are, then that's probably a sign that it's not the right therapist. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. We don't always, we don't always get it right the first time, right? <laughs> I've been to therapy. Every therapist should have a therapist. Okay. I've, I went to a therapist once and in the second or third session, she started saying things like tomorrow's another day. Like time heals all wounds, Melissa. And I just looked at her like, you know, I'm a therapist, right? Are you really telling me tomorrow's another day time? I'm like, I could get that on a bumper sticker. And I didn't go back. Yeah. We just yeah. weren't a good fit. Maybe some people really like that, but yeah, <laughs> it wasn't for me. Yeah. So. So Melissa, can you sh share with me about EMDR? Cause that's something that I benefited immensely from, but. So good. Yes. Yes. I know I'm making like excited faces over here. Um, I love EMDR. Um, I've been trained in it since about 2012. I'm actually, um, a consultant. So I get to train other clinicians on EMDR. 
Um, EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which basically means we work with your nervous system to take the sting and the weight out of stuff that's happened in the past mm. so that it can feel more like it's in the past instead of being triggered by it throughout your day currently, right? And what I love about EMDR in short, what I would want for your listeners to know is that it does such a beautiful job of connecting what we know in our heads with what we feel in our hearts and what we sense in our bodies, mm. because we're not just walking heads. We're heads, we're emotions, and we're body sensations. So I always use a lot of stories because I want people to know they're not alone, right? So I've had clients, you know, and, and people tell me this is no one specific. You know, I know in my head what happened to me wasn't my fault, but I still feel anxious and my heart races at night when I think about if I could have done something different, mm -hmm. right? I know in my head I did everything I could, but I still feel nauseous every time I watch a movie and this thing happens, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes our heads and our hearts and our bodies are in different places. Yeah. Um, you know, like, Anne, you've mentioned that, you know, you seem confident about your choice to have left the faith, but then you also, it sounds like, cause you've talked in other podcasts. So I'm going to bring this up cause you've talked about it. You get triggered by things currently, even though, you know, in your head, I'm safe now I'm in my house. I've left. It's okay. Your body is still like, Whoa, this is, this is heavy, right? So EMDR does a really beautiful job of streamlining all those things and taking the weight and the sting out of it. Can you walk me through a session, just basically what happens? In EMDR therapy? Yeah. yeah. So what people should know is the first time they go for EMDR, they're not automatically going to start doing eye movements, right? In a nutshell, the eye movements help to calm your nervous system and loosen um, what we're stuck on with that memory, whether it's the pain or the betrayal or whatever. Um, what you'll experience in an EMDR session is you'll talk with your therapist about specifically what you want to focus on. What part was painful for you? There might be multiple parts. So you're going to get real clear on which one to start with. You're going to do some skills to make sure that you can stay calm in your body while you're focusing on this stuff. You want emotions to come up, but you also don't want to have a panic attack or feel detached from your body. We would call that dissociating, right? Where you start to feel a little fuzzy or you feel like you've left the room. Mm -hmm. um, so you're going to focus, you're going to feel safe, and then you're going to start to do what's called dual attention. So you're going to think of the thing that was painful. You're going to hold it in your mind. And at the same time, you're going to follow your therapist's fingers back and forth. Just like if you were sleeping, your eyes shift when you're in really deep sleep. It's the same thing. We're just doing it while you're awake. It's not natural or it's not unnatural. It's not witchcraft. The ties, do you're all very safe. And as you're doing those eye movements, you're just noticing what comes up. You're just noticing whatever else you remember. May, you might remember stuff that's uncomfortable, like, wow, this happened a lot or this happened with more than one person. Oh, I feel really gross. I feel like I'm nauseous. Or you might remember, you know what? I had a friend I told once and she believed me when I told her what happened. I feel really warm remembering that, you know? And you just notice what happens and you continue doing that until you can think of the painful event and feel okay thinking about it. 
it might not ever be a fun memory. Mm-hmm. Bad stuff happens. It's just going to feel bad when you think about it. It's not fun, but maybe you can think about it and still move on with your day. Yeah. Not lash out at your kids, not have a panic attack. Maybe you go for a walk, you do your deep breathing and you're okay. Mm-hmm. We, uh, so that's what, that's what sessions look like. That's great. The just has had a lot of freedom from EMDR. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. talked about it in other podcasts, but, yet. um, like when we were overseas, he, there was a kidnapping uh, of Josiah. Um, and so the EMDR was tremendously helpful years after the fact. Um, and actually tied into other life events that had triggered that kidnapping, making it worse in his mind. Um, mm-hmm. so he found a lot of freedom from that. Um, I'm just starting. I mean, that startup process, like I've had two sessions, mm-hmm. but I haven't done EMDR yet because we're just laying the groundwork and the focusing on like figuring out if there's dissociation and all these things. So it's kind of to be continued. <laughs> Let's do a whole other episode on EMDR. I would love yeah, that. That would sure. be great. Yeah. I've, I've done EMDR myself. Um, my childhood home was flooded a couple years ago. Um, I was no longer living there and the helplessness I felt mm. watching it happen for me was traumatic. It wasn't that I experienced it. I was states away. And that's what made it so difficult was feeling out of control. And like, I couldn't do anything. And I started having real anxiety and panic attacks, EMDR. I was already trained. So I went to an EMDR therapist knowing that it was the right thing for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I still think of what a beautiful experience that was Mm -hmm. now nearly a decade ago, having that healing. yeah, Yeah, that's really neat. I wrote a blog post about it on my blog, josiahmeyer.com called my EMDR experience. And I described it. It was kind of like if I had a corpse that had been cut up and put all over my house, then would just kind of randomly, I would see like a hand or a foot and it would just kind of like, ah, there's a body part. That was what it was like living with PTSD. It was like random times when you don't expect it. Ah, you know, and EMDR was like having a funeral and it wasn't a, it wasn't really a fun experience, but it was kind of somber. And it was this process of putting everything back together, putting it in a box, closing that up and then putting kind of a sarcophagus over that and kind of writing on the top, like one day I was kidnapped in Africa, you know? And if somebody asks me that I can say, yeah, one day I was kidnapped in Africa. That costs me nothing. That doesn't hurt me. It doesn't, you know, if you want me to open up that box and go into the memories, like that's going to be traumatic for me, but Mm -hmm. I'm not stumbling over those anymore. EMDR was able to put those in a box and put a label on that so that I can go on with my life. And if somebody, you know, if, if it comes up in conversation, I can, I can mention that, but it's not crippling me anymore. So yeah, I'm a good friend of that metaphor. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I am. I wanted to highlight as we close that you have a month long immersion group coming up to help people with their faith transition. And I think it would be tremendously helpful for so many people. Um, Did you want to talk a little bit about it? I would love to. So this is a passion project of mine. Um, 
And with COVID and everything, people are, I mean, so much, right? With COVID, people are needing support now more than ever because when stress is high, it just raises like the ocean, right? It's not one puddle goes up, everything just starts feeling a little yuckier. So we need support now more than ever. We need community. And especially when going through a faith crisis, a faith crisis is so personal and so intimate. And especially depending on the faith that you've been raised in, it can feel very secretive mm-hmm. and shameful. Yeah. And one thing that shame cannot survive is light. Mm. When you shine a big bright light on shame, it withers and dies. It's the scariest thing to do, to look at. I feel horrible about this, but once you do, it evaporates. It's the most amazing thing. When we allow ourselves to be seen and witnessed, that's when healing occurs. And so I've done so much work in my one-on-one sessions with people leaving the faith. And one of the things that they talk about is a lack of community. They don't know how to connect to people. It's difficult to share. And so I just knew I wanted to create a group where people could come and get this information so that I can reach more people at once. And I think there's power in people sharing their stories and no longer feeling alone. That in and of itself is healing because really it's not my ego that's in this. Um, And so the group, what it looks like is it starts February 1st. It's a private hidden Facebook group and it's going to be open for a month. What's gonna happen in that group is every week I'm gonna be doing a live Zoom call and we're gonna tackle exactly what we talked about in this podcast today, inherent value boundaries, how to have relationships with boundaries so that you can feel respected, so that you can ask for space and time, so that you can share with people you trust, make new friends, and maybe have the strength to leave relationships that are no longer working. I know that you guys have had to do that with some or all of your family members. You've had to set boundaries and say, we can't do this anymore. This isn't healthy, right? Um, And also to understand the phases of change. I can't tell people what's going to happen in their life, what changes are going to happen. You know, you're going to leave and you're going to become Jewish. You're going to leave and you're going to become atheist. Um, I don't know, but there is a literal roadmap for how change occurs. And that's deeply empowering to know I'm going to have questions. I'm going to have doubts. I'm going to consider change. I might go back to having doubts then I'll consider change again, then maybe I'll take action. There's a roadmap for that. Um, So there's the weekly calls where we're going to unpack all of that. People will have homework that they can do. No pressure homework, but I know some people want to do stuff during the week to deepen their experience and they really crave that accountability. Um, And with that, I'll be in the group every day offering support with the other group members. So if, for example, somebody you know, comes out to their family and, you know, during this month and says, I'm, I'm leaving the faith. Um, if their family has a bad reaction, they can come into the group and say, ah, I just told my family and they, they hung up the phone on me before I could finish. I'm crying. I don't know what to do. I'll be there in the group every day, offering support, guidance, redirection, other people loving on them and saying, Hey, me too. Um, and then within the group, there's also what I'm calling a VIP experience because I wasn't feeling creative that day. Um, mm-hmm. The VIP experience, people would also do an additional 60 minutes one-on-one with me privately. 
And that's if they're really feeling a need to unpack something maybe a little unique to their life circumstances. So how to talk to your kids. Um, if you're coming out in terms of a gender or sexuality transition in addition to your faith, um, special boundary circumstances, if there's been additional abuse, sexual or emotional abuse or addiction that you want private help unpacking. Um, and then there's also an additional call with the VIP experience really focusing on self-care because most of us don't know what self-care actually looks like. We get marketed self-care, right? Yeah. Like go get a massage, go get your nails done, go get a hot shave at the barbers. Like, but that's, there's so much more to self-care than all of those things. Um, and so the group is, is for one month and it's just going to be so exciting. And I should add, really just like today's podcast, this information and these lessons are for everybody. Yeah. I've had so many people ask like, well, what if I'm not LDS or what if I just want to learn about inherent worth and better boundaries? Cause I'm struggling. That's totally fine. Come yeah. to the group, know that the stories that get shared are going to be people's faith stories perhaps, but everyone is welcome. Um, and it's really for anyone at any stage of their faith transition. I have a, a gal who's considering joining that she's very firmly LDS. She has no plans to leave, but she wants to better support people. And she wants to be in better connection to her value boundaries and self-care. So she's, she's going to join the group. Um, I'm super excited. I, I so deeply believe in the power of community and people coming yeah. together. Well, we, we were last year, we did a month long counseling thing. And um, part of that was group therapy is what they called it really. Um, and people share those stories and then just responded to each other. And it was very helpful to have that. And I feel like this is part of what you're offering. And there's so much worth to that, that people are coming with, with privacy, like they will keep you privacy, but they will listen and they will respond and they will encourage you and just be there. Like that's, that's worth a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And doing it online really allows people to move at their own pace. They yeah. can be as active or inactive as they want. You know, when you're in a room full of people, sometimes you feel that pressure to share because everyone else yeah. is sharing. <laughs> online, it gives you a little bit more of that anonymity. Yeah. Um, you know, people obviously on Facebook will see that you're in the group, but they're in the group too, right? So yeah. everybody's seeing everybody, but it really gives a little, a lot more flexibility. Wow, that's really great. Um, we will put the link to that in our description of this podcast so that people can refer to it. Um, it's also on, the link is also on your Instagram page. Um, mm -hmm. What is the address again for the, it's Guided so, Wellness Counseling, right? <laughs> guided Wellness Counseling UT. So for the state of Utah. So okay. www.guidedwellnesscounselingut.com and then they can forward slash from dash LDS dash two dash LDX. So from LDS to LDX is the name yeah. of the group. And we yeah. will, we will link the, we will link that in the description. So it's easier <laughs> to get to. Um, for anyone that's, that's listening or visits the Instagram or Facebook page, there's a coupon code they can use for $50 off. Wow. And the coupon code is friend 50. Nice. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with people. Um, it has been great talking with you today. Yes, it's it has. so nice. Um, you have so much wealth of information. 
um, just really nice person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm really glad we got to do this. Um, And I I think we should do the MDR ones. schedule it more more people need to know more people yeah, need to know and I think especially because it's different than talk therapy yeah. so people sometimes feel um a little uncomfortable and at the same time some people think I've been talking about this for years and nothing's changed yeah right that's a sign trust your gut that's a sign you need to do something different mm-hmm. yeah I mean, I, I understand the the worry of it a little bit. I and mean, Josiah's done it a year, over a year ago, he did his EMDR and I saw the freedom he got from it. Um, over a year later, I'm just starting now. So there's a timeline for each person too, sometimes. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Change happens when you're ready. ready yeah. And yeah, it's just great to know the tools and the more we understand about them, the more comfortable we can be at seeking them out. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much, Melissa. And we look forward to, I look forward to, uh, seeing more of your stuff on Instagram and, uh, yeah, let's schedule this next podcast shortly. Sounds good. Thank you guys so much for sharing your journey publicly. It means so much to so many people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening and have a good day. Bye.